Howdy and welcome to the 10-week Bible study. This is week nine, day two of our study of Esther. I'm your host, Darren Hibbs, and today we're talking about Esther 9, 5 through 10. Well, welcome back to the 10-week Bible study. Again, I'm your host, Darren Hibbs. Would you join me as we pray before we start today? Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears to hear what your word has to say to us? God, speak to us and flood our hearts with the knowledge of you today. We want to encounter you in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. With that, let's jump into God's word. I'll be reading today from the NIV. This is Esther 9, starting in verse 5. The Jews struck down all of their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to to those who hated them. I want to pause right there. This is one of the other clues. We talked about this last week in chapter 8. I think that the edict that Mordecai sent out, it was not just an edict of defense. I think, and again, we, we discussed how I think, and again, the Bible doesn't make this very clear, but I think this is what's going on. I'm, I'm kind of reading between the lines here. If you give an edict, say, hey, it's open season. You can kill as many Jews, all of them preferably that you want on this particular day, you know, in the last month of the year, get rid of them all on this day. But we got 10 months until then. I think those 10 months are going to get increasingly hostile toward the Jews. So I think that's what's going on here. I think in Mordecai's edict, he's not just saying anyone who attacks the Jews on this particular day in the last month. I think what he said is anyone who has persecuted the Jews, anyone who's attacked them, anyone who's mistreated them, anyone who's stolen from them. I mean, they're running shops. They've got businesses. People are coming in. I mean, like, ah, you're dying in December. It's not December. It was like March. But, you know, they're saying, well, you're going to die in March anyway. Um, December would be our 12th month is why I said that. But this is like, you know, let's just pretend it's, it's here in, in our modern calendar. They say, well, you're going to die. You know, it's, it's April, whatever. And, and they Go into your shop. You're going to die in December anyway. I'm taking whatever I want out of your shop. Who wouldn't do that? Who would not do that? How many people would continue treating the Jews normally and and treating them with, with kindness? There's going to be so much of that going on. So we've not, I think, I think not just got the people attacking them, but I think the people who have been abusing them for all of these months and I imagine even when they understood that the tides were shifting, there's still people who were treating them badly all this time thinking, well, I'm still going to mistreat you. I'm still going to steal from you. I'm still going to do this stuff because I'm coming for you, you know, in, in the last month of the year, I'm definitely coming for you. So, so there's, there's a lot of those dynamics, a lot of those tensions going on amongst all of these people. And so, when it says that, you know, they, they did what they pleased to those who hated them. I think that that is, in my opinion, hinting at more than just the people who are coming to attack them, but the people who have been abusing them, stealing from them, doing all manner of terrible things to them over these, these last several months. I think that's what we're talking about here. And they've got help from all of the government officials to do it. Verse six. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. So in the capital city, in in the palace city, 500 people died. All right, so I've read differing reports of how big this capital city was. It was big. 
it wasn't New York City big. It's it wasn't a you know modern massive city. None of the ancient world cities were big. But as far as ancient cities go, this was a big city, a very lavish city, very beautiful city. So five hundred men is not really that many in terms of how many people actually lived in the city, but it's still a lot. When you're talking about, you know, this, the, the way this city was set up is, is, is very much, you know, Washington, D.C. in the United States, for those of you that are, you know, U.S. citizens and, and people who live here, you understand that if you've ever been there, Washington is just completely government base. Every, every, every industry, everything that's going on in Washington surrounds the government and the bureaucracies and all of these things have grown so large that everything feeds off of the government. It was even more so in Susa. Pretty much this is a, an, you know, the city of the empire. And this is, is the, the principal place where the empire is doing business. And so you don't really live in Susa. If you go to Washington, DC, there's lots of other people. There's lots of poverty. There's, 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 it's a giant city and there's lots of people that aren't necessarily directly connected to the workings of government. But in Susa, I think there's, there's a much higher percentage of people that are directly connected to the government. You'd have no business really living in this city unless you are connected to the government or you in an industry that's serving the wealthy people that are connected to the government, restaurant owners, shop owners, things like that. But there's a very high percentage of people connected directly to the governance of the Persian empire in this city. And so 500 men, these are not 500 random men. Some of these are well-connected. Some of these thinking are thinking, this is my opportunity to get rid of these guys and then eventually attack and take over Mordecai. You know, I imagine they're politically connected people. They're, they're people that are high up. They're people that are mid-level government. They're people that are in these service industries servicing all of these people. They're not people that are unknown. They're not just 500 nobodies. In the capital city, everybody is kind of a somebody. This is one of those things where I think you're kind of a, there, there's only big fish in this big pond is basically what it is. All of these people in this capital city, they have a reason to be there and they're somebody. They're not just country bumpkins living there. All of these 500 men, they've got a story, they've got things going on, they've got a reason for doing this. And so this 500 men, even though it's it's a small number compared to the population of the city and compared to what we're going to find out that happens throughout the Persian Empire, it's going to be 500 people that I believe were very, their, their loss was felt. So this is not an unimportant 500 men is what I'm getting at. This is a big deal. Verse 7. They also killed Parshadantha, Dalphon, Asath, Aspatha, Poratha, Adelia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. I hope you enjoyed me trying to read those names. I even practiced that, and I still have a hard time with those. So, in addition, or in inclusive or in addition to the 500 people, there's another 10 sons of Haman. Now, remember, Haman was put to death all these months prior, and now many months have passed, and now the 10 sons of Haman are in the group of people attacking the Jews. They're going to finish what their father started. They've lost everything. Their entire estate 
was given to Mordecai. They have nothing to lose at this point. They've been impoverished. They've been, I mean, seriously, like these guys have had the worst fate of anybody in the kingdom. Everything they have has been taken away from them. They lost their father. They lost all of their money, all of their generational wealth that they would have inherited. They have nothing. And so they've been living probably in destitute poverty for the last several months. So they have nothing to lose. So they're in the group that's going to be attacking the Jews, trying to reclaim hopefully what's theirs from Mordecai and the other Jews. And they're, they're killed in the process as well. But here's the thing that I, I really want to point out. We're going to, we're going to revisit this one more time in this chapter. When the Jews attacked all of these 500 people and especially the 10 sons, they did not touch any of the plunder. They didn't take any of it. Now, this was part of the edict that Mordecai had given out is anybody that attacks you. And again, this was really, I think the genius in what Mordecai did is, hey, we can assemble, we can fight back and attack you. And if we win, we get all of your stuff, right? We might only kill you, but we're going to take all of your wife and your children's things, their inheritance, so that you're dead and now your family's destitute. That's the idea. So that's setting a really high bar and making it to where people are rethinking, eh, I don't really want to do this. It's not worth it. You know, even if I die, it's going to go poorly for my family. I don't really want to be a part of this. Um, but when it comes down to it, all of these Jews, they attack these people, they kill them, and then they don't take the plunder. Even from Haman, what, what they had left, which was probably very little, but everyone else, they don't touch any of it. And the question is why? They were allowed to. They were actually kind of encouraged to do so. If you attack these people, take their stuff. We want the, the bar to be really high for them to rethink this. So why didn't they? Why didn't they take the plunder? The Bible doesn't directly tell us. It never, in Esther, it never comes out and says, this is why they didn't do it. But I have a, a theory. I have one theory, and I think it's a really good one, and I think this is what's going on in their minds. Haman, the Agagite. We've, he's been referenced that way multiple times. He's a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites. When God told Saul, King Saul, the very first king of Israel, to go and attack the Amalekites. He told them to destroy them completely, wipe them out, men, women, children, and their livestock. The Lord told Saul, do not lay your hands on any of the plunder. This is all happening in the book of 1 Samuel, as recorded. Samuel gives this word of the Lord to Saul. Saul disobeys. Saul doesn't kill King Agag. Saul actually keeps a lot of the plunder. And one of the reasons he did this was because the one of the ways that you really paid your soldiers back in Saul's day and really throughout history is if we go and attack somewhere, I'm giving you a modest salary to live on, but when we go and attack somebody, you get to keep all of their stuff and personally enrich yourself off of their plunder. And so for Saul to tell his men, hey, we're going to attack these people, but we're not going to take any of their stuff. He was afraid to tell them that. He was afraid to say, hey, we're not going to take any of their stuff for fear that his men are going to mutiny and be like, well, then we're not attacking with you. If there's no, nothing in it for us other than to make your name greater, Saul, we're not doing it. In that way, ancient armies are, are a bit mercenary-like. And so Saul was afraid to do that. So Saul said, told the men, essentially, you can lay your hand on some of the plunder, only the best of the plunder, 
but not all of it. You can take the very best stuff. And then he goes into this, I think, self-justification or cognitive dissonance or whatever. And he tells himself, I'll let them do it so we can sacrifice it. But I think he knows that he's not going to ask them to make sacrifices of all of these things. And so when Samuel comes up, they've taken, and I imagine that when Saul says, you can only lay your hands on the best of the best stuff, all of his soldiers are now, oh, oh, well, this thing is best of the best, and this is best of the best, and this pen cap is best of the best. I mean, again, human nature is what it is, and I think they're just keeping everything or most things, right? So when when Samuel shows up and Saul greets him, he's like, hey, you came, and, and the first words out of Samuel's mouth is, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears, the first thing he says to Saul is, why have you kept some of the plunder? The Lord said, do not touch it. And yet here I'm, I'm, I'm hearing the sound of sheep that you've kept. And then Saul's like, oh, oh, well, you know, it's, 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 it's because, you know, I, I wanted them to sacrifice. We kept the best of the best so we could make a sacrifice to the Lord. And that's when Samuel says, the Lord desires obedience, not sacrifice. Very famous verse. And so I think that that verse, I think that that story is running through Mordecai's mind by the time all of this happens. I think that's running through all of the Jews' mind by the time this happens. And I think that that in this process, Mordecai has issued these decrees, but he's also speaking to the people and word has gotten out for all of these Jews that none of them, they've all decided together, none of them are going to lay their hands on the plunder because of the the unfulfilled command that the Lord had given to King Saul through the prophet Samuel, all these generations earlier, Saul laid his hand on the, hands on the plunder and he did not wipe them all out. He let Agag live. And obviously there were descendants of Agag that Saul let live. And so they're here to this day. And I think that story is in everyone's mind and they're not about to set their hands to any of this plunder. It's, it's, it's almost like all of these Jews are, are saying, we're going to fulfill the command of the prophet Samuel from the book of 1 Samuel that Saul didn't all these years ago. We're going to fulfill it here. So they are attacking their enemies. They're doing all this, but they're not laying their hands on any of the plunder. And I find that very fascinating that they are, I believe, walking, trying to walk out obedience to something hundreds and hundreds of years before. We're going to see this again in our passage coming up. For the 10-Week Bible Study, I'm your host, Aaron Hibbs, and I can't wait to see you next time. Hey, thanks for tuning into the 10-Week Bible Study podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving a review for it on your podcast app of choice? It really helps other people find out about this podcast, and my heart is for people to fall in love with God's Word. Thank you.